Hello, I'm Curtis Bowers, and this is Agenda Weekly. Thank you so much for joining me again this week. Uh, this week, we're going to be covering a very important topic. It's about the financial situation our country is in, most businesses in America are in, and most individuals are in. They're buried in debt, and because of interest rates rising and things happening, we're heading for a collapse very clearly, and it will happen. We know that to be a fact because God says that whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And so finally the chickens are coming home to roost. And so we're going to be talking with David McIlvaney, who's the CEO of International Collectors and Associates. And we're going to talk about what is going on, how serious it is, uh, what we can be doing as individuals to preserve some of our wealth, and, and to just be prepared and to be alert and to pay attention to what's going on around us. And David McIlvaney is my brother-in-law. And so I wanted to tell you that because I've told you many stories about my mom and dad and some of the things that they did and that God blessed and the efforts they've done. But I want to tell you now about my in-laws. My father-in-law and my mother-in-law also have a very unique story it's special to me because God put me in two families that both have been active since the early 1960s in trying to make a difference, trying to stand up for what is right, trying to warn people, hey, hey, watch out, this isn't a good situation. And so I'm so thankful God has allowed me with the films and different things he's allowed me to do to continue on the work that they started long ago. But Don McIlvaney, who's my father-in-law and a wonderful man, back in the 1960s, he was working with the New York Stock Exchange firm, and he saw, as Lyndon Johnson was implementing all these big government programs, he, he saw, wait a minute, this system can't last forever. People need to preserve their wealth some way. And he just, he knew things were wrong there, and he thought, People need to, to be able to buy gold and silver and things. And, and again, back then, you weren't allowed to own gold. A lot of people don't realize that. From 1934 to 1975, it was against the law to own gold in America. Did you know that? Most people don't, and it's crazy. It was a five-year prison sentence if you were caught with gold. Well, he realized people need to own gold, and it was still against the law. So in 1972, what they did, it was so clever. They realized, wait a minute, people have gold jewelry on and stuff, so you can own gold. You just can't own it like bullion coins and things like that, where it's owned for the simple purpose of preserving your wealth. They didn't want you to preserve your wealth. And so he came up with a very clever idea. He's like, I'm going to make two ounce gold coins that are religious medallions. And what they were, and I've seen some of them, they still have, and they're really neat. It's Moses holding the Ten Commandments that were put on these coins, and they hired a company to make these two-ounce gold coins for them. Now, amazingly, in 1972, when they started doing this, gold was only $35 an ounce. That's how they've destroyed our currency. It was $35 an ounce. So these two ounce gold coins, I think they sold for a hundred bucks or whatever, was uh, incredible investment obviously at that time. And so they started selling those and they it took off. 
I mean, they started selling more than they could have minted. And that's where ICA came from, International Collectors and Associates. So my in-laws started that, and I, I'm so proud of them, the way they did it. Molly, who's my mother-in-law, she was watching my wife, Lauren, um, as a little girl while she was calling companies and calling people to, to get orders from them. And the amount of sales they had back in the 70s is pretty incredible. <laughs> They've told me the numbers because people realized the same thing they had. This system is not going to work well. When governments start spending more money than they have, and, and, and everybody is just not being purposeful, not being careful with the resources God has given them, it's not going to end well. Finally, in January of 1975, because Don and some of his friends had been pressing different members of Congress to make it legal again for people to own gold, it was passed, where then you could actually own regular bullion coins and everything. And so anyway... It's a kind of neat piece of history that our family's involved with, and they've been doing business now for over 50 years. But one other thing I want to mention before we go to the interview with David McIlvaney is my father-in-law has always been 20 years ahead. He's always been someone that can see clearly, oh, here's what's coming. And he wrote a book in 1999. And I'm going to talk to you about it here in a second. It's not in print anymore. Maybe we should reprint it. Um, but he wrote it in 1999. Now think back to 1999. Happy days were here again. Remember the stock market was just booming because of all the high-tech internet stocks were just going up for no reason. They weren't making money or anything. And everything was going great in America. And at that time, when things were like that, he saw the storm clouds way off in the distance on the horizon. And he wrote a book called Storm Warning, The Coming Persecutions of Christians and Traditionalists in America. And where are we today? That's right where we are. <laughs> I think that's just so amazing. It adds such credibility to someone that is so well informed and so understands the times. They can see way before anybody else, here's what's coming. Here's what's happening. That's exactly what's going on today. There's some new book out called The Coming Persecutions of Christians that's a number one bestseller. I saw I go, my father-in-law 24 years ago wrote that same book, and he was really preparing people for what is coming. And he also added in the subtitle there, and traditionalists. Who are traditionalists? The MAGA crowd. The Make America Great Again people the people that were behind Trump, the people that saw we need to put America first. We need to start worrying about our own country and stop meddling in the affairs of everybody else. But anyway, he saw that and that's what's happened. What happened on January 6th? Our government came after the traditionalists, said we're throwing you in jail. You're going to sit there for over two years without even being given a court case. Well, that's where we are. But I just, I love that, that he had the, foresight and the foreknowledge to know this is where we're heading and that's where we are heading. And so we need to be prepared the best we can. God will take care of us, but he doesn't take care of the fool that is not stored up for the winter. He doesn't take care of the person that's careless and that doesn't thoughtfully look at the situation around him and go, am I doing what is best right now at this time in history to protect myself and my family and, and those that I love. 
And so that's what we're going to talk about today. But thank you so much again for joining me. I really appreciate it. David McIlvaney, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be with you again. So good to see you. Um, over the last several weeks, I've gotten a lot of emails from people <clears throat> and they've asked questions like, what's going on? <laughs> what in the world's going on? And I know we're all getting little sound bites from media and stuff of this, what's happened, this, the, or this is what ha has happened. And there's a lot of confusion on that. Um, I've also gotten a lot of emails from people saying, it seems like a good time to buy gold and silver. And do you know anybody that does that? And, and so I thought of you instantly. Yes, uh, David is a good one to, to, to come on, explain what's going on so they understand that. And then at the end, even talk about the process of buying gold and silver, why some people do that. Uh, the, the wise reasons for doing that and, and how to do that and, and things like that for those that are interested. But I guess so in starting off, just kind of give us a broad overview before we get into specifics. What really is going on? There seems so much chaos in the financial systems. Curtis, thanks for thanks for having having me into this conversation. You know, there's there's a lot of complexity and we could get into the details and to the degree that you want to, we can. I think if you want for the simple view of what has happened, it's it's developed over several decades. So what is in the marketplace today is not because of what happened yesterday, but of all the yesterdays combined. And so you, know, you look at what has happened in terms of our addiction to debt as a country. And this is corporations, this is individuals, this is the government itself. And when you accumulate this debt, it ultimately has to be paid back. And while you're in that interim period, you also have interest to pay on the debt. Well, we've been very fortunate from, let's say, 1982 to the present, almost 40 years, to have interest rates declining. So the cost to finance, if you're going to take out a loan, the cost to borrow money has been coming down and down and down, which has given us the sense of we can add more debt to our balance sheet. And there's really no ad additional cost because interest rates were at 12 and 10 and eight and six. And we actually got to a 5,000 year low in terms of the cost of borrowing money just a few years ago. Okay, so th th I think the real, the real story is, is debt addiction. And, and you see these IOUs proliferate. We begin to take for granted what they actually are. And then all of a sudden when interest rates begin to rise, this growth model that we've adopted, you could even call it creditism, which is stood in for capitalism. Capitalism is, of course, when you save money and then put it to work. You know, you, you live beneath your means, you have excess capital, and then you can invest it in what you consider to be viable opportunities, your own business or some other enterprise that someone else is managing. <clears throat> creditism is, is different. It basically says we will grow not on the basis of taking calculated risks, we will grow on the basis of there being more money in the system. In this case, money and credit are basically the same thing. So, you know, $2 trillion, it wasn't that many decades ago that $2 trillion is what we had in terms of our national debt. And then it bumped to six. Now we're at 31. And the Congressional Budget Office has a slotted to be well above 50 by the year 2032. So, 
again, it's not a big deal, Curtis, if you keep interest rates low, even zero, or imagine where we were just a year or two ago, negative interest rates. What is the cost to borrow money with a negative interest rate? It's almost like being paid to borrow money, right? Yeah. So, so in this case, now we have sort of a reversion to the mean where interest rates go. They've been higher now for a couple of years. And, and, and believe it or not, these are things that take many decades to play out. If you look at 200 years of interest rate history here in the United States, the shortest trend, either up or down for interest rates was 22 years. The longest trend, we just we broke the record, which was 36 to 38 years. And now the new all-time record in terms of interest rates moving one direction or the other, 40. So we came down from 1982 to 2022. Now we've got interest rates on the rise and there's no reason to think that we aren't going to have a continual increase in interest rates over the next several decades. And that has major ramifications for the stock market, for the bond market, for real estate, for gold. So as someone who's making decisions as it relates to their financial picture, it's important to understand what is driving these issues. It's not just a Silicon Valley bank or a signature bank. And you know, today it's an issue, tomorrow it'll be resolved. These are major structural issues issues which have been decades in the making and and in fact take some time to resolve themselves there's always a bigger story behind this story i've noticed that as i've read history and studied things it's always there's so it's so much deeper than you think when you just hear sound bites on the news oh it's going to be short term or it's transitory or all these little buzzwords just to keep the system afloat so over the last couple of weeks we've seen some things happen that are pretty major, like with the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and everything. Uh, kind of explain what happened there. And is it limited to those banks or are other banks possibly threatened by that same type of thing happening? Yeah, I mean, I've heard a lot of explanations and read from the experts. There's, there's a number of things in play. And uh, some of them are just sort of to sort of smooth over and, and bring calm back into the marketplace. Um, so some of what you're being told is not exactly accurate. For instance, I, I, I read a circular from one of the big banks here in the U.S. that said, oh, the problem was that Signature was involved in cryptocurrencies. And, and that clearly was the issue. Or, you know, we, we look at we look at Signature and clearly, you know, they're out in Silicon Valley. And with, so with SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, their issues where they were invested in technology. And that's very volatile. Well, this is another bank saying it's not our problem. It was only limited to these banks. When in reality, what happened with both of these banks was, uh, here are the three factors, the big factors. One, they had big deposits over the $250,000 insurable amount. So big deposits that you know, frankly, looked and said, I'm not sure I'm covered here anymore. And I don't think I want to take the risk. So we're just going to take the money out because they were big deposits. When you have big deposits hitting the exits, it has a significant impact for the bank's liquidity. So that's one factor was, was above the $250,000 threshold deposits and lots of them. Another factor was that these banks had significant securities portfolios. By securities, I mean uh, mortgage-backed securities and treasuries. These are very boring instruments. If you think about, you know, you may have a mortgage on a house, right? It, and, and that just represents an, an IOU 
and somebody is collecting interest and principal payments each month, and it's stretched out over 15 or even 30 years. It's intended to be boring, but it's not boring in a rising interest rate environment. Because if you imagine bonds, they're like a seesaw, okay? With low interest rates, you've got high values. As interest rates come up, the value of that piece of paper goes down, okay? So you've got these banks who, through COVID, had a significant influx of deposits. We're talking $5 trillion worth of stimulus, which came into the banking system and had nowhere to go. Banks typically take deposits and make loans. If they can't make loans because there's not enough people to borrow the money, then they just invested in securities as an alternative. In this case, again, we're talking about mortgage-backed securities and treasuries, right? This is fairly typical, not, not, not a complicated piece of, of, of work, but with $5 trillion coming into the banking system, most of the money did not go to loans. It went into securities. Think about the context of this, this particular period of time. Interest rates were zero. Right? So you're buying a bond that's paying you nothing. What happens when interest rates begin to go up? Of course, you're going to lose value on that portfolio. That's what's happening. And, and banks do not have to, quote unquote, mark their portfolios to market. In other words, they don't have to realize losses in real time. Just because the portfolio says they're down a billion, down five billion, down $50 billion, it doesn't matter until you have depositors asking for their money back then they have to go to liquidating that portfolio and they realize the loss. When they realize the loss, then everybody says, wait a minute, this bank's in trouble. And it means that you've got basically zombie financial entities. The question is, can they keep their depositors in one place? Because as soon as the depositor moves, you've got the realized loss on the portfolio. That's your insolvency moment. It goes from liquidity to solvency crisis very quickly. And this is one of the reasons why the Federal Reserve and the Treasury basically said, we'll guarantee everything. You know, I mean, in, 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 with the stroke of a pen, it's no longer $100,000 deposits, which what is what the limit was, the insurable limit was prior to the global financial crisis. They bumped it to 250. They said, no, it doesn't matter if it's a, you've got a million dollars on deposit, $5 million, $50 million, we'll cover, we'll guarantee all of it. Why? Because when the money moves, that's when you realize the loss on that portfolio. And that's when you have to say, wait a minute, the loss is bigger than total bank capital. We're insolvent. <laughs> so it happened that fast for those two banks. It could happen to 50 other banks. There's a third aspect, and it is that particularly with Silicon Valley Bank, when you buy a portfolio like this, you can buy insurance on the portfolio. Silicon Valley Bank decided that he didn't need to. There's a cost to managing risk. You know, this is in a conversation with a friend of mine in a car accident just, you know, a year ago. And the lady gets out of the car and says, I'm so sorry, I'm not insured. And he's like, why are you not insured? It's like, well, it costs money to be insured. And so it works until it doesn't, right? You're saving money. Right. Until you get in an accident, and then it matters that you're insured. And that's what just happened to these banks is they were running fast and loose. They had the money. They could afford it, but they didn't want to spend the money on it. They didn't. Are there other banks in the same position? All we know is that you've got $5 trillion that comes into the banking system. 
it can't go into loans. Keep, keep in mind, I mean, who was borrowing money to expand their business in the context of a global pandemic? You have businesses shutting down because you have no traffic coming in the front door, right? So you've got, you've got this crushing of, of, of the economy and money has only one place to go mortgage-backed securities, treasuries. They can't take high risk. They're not investing in stocks. They're not investing in private companies. Banks can't do that. So that is the problem. That's why I am somewhat concerned that you've got other banks that are dealing with the same issues. We've already seen the policymakers play their hand. They will guarantee every dollar. Where you should be concerned is what is the cost to that, right? When the policymakers say, we'll solve every problem, is it for free? No. I mean, ultimately, the bailouts, and this is where a little history, you look at the bailouts of the tech bust going back to 2000, 2001, 2002. You look at the bailouts during the global financial crisis, which started as a subprime lending problem, right? This is just mortgages. They weren't really checking to see if anyone could even fog a mirror. <laughs> you know, you, you, do you have an income? No. Can you fog a mirror? No, it doesn't matter. Here's the money. Is it a surprise that we ended up with a, a real estate crisis back in 2007, 8, 9? And a lot of those, a lot of those were given like 110% loans. So you actually right. got money when, at the closing. You got money. And you had no money down. And you got, oh, it's $300,000 house. Oh, here's your $30,000 check to go with your new house. So yeah. was, was why just... don't you take a vacation? Go to Disney. You'll be fine. It was so yeah. crazy. So, so what happens is, is the government steps in and says, well, we may have been the proximate cause of the crisis, but we'll also be the solution. It's almost like a, a, a fireman arsonist, you know, bipolar scenario where you start a fire and then you come in as the hero and say, well, I'll put it out for you. And, and so we have that yet again, bank guarantees from the Treasury and the Fed solving a problem that really is, is, is having to do with too much liquidity in the financial system through COVID, five trillion comes into the system and creates chaos, creates malinvestment, bad investment decisions. Now those things are changing, creates instability, and who's here to solve the problem? Fed and the Treasury here to put more money into the system. Why is that important to investors? Because inflation is not going away. I mean, when you when you create when you create more liquidity and put it into the system, it really is you know, who's got the money. And, and where is it being spent? We had asset price inflation through the period of Wall Street being given trillions of dollars and Wall Street recycling that money and Wall Street's resources, its stocks and bonds, all of a sudden they're increasing in value, right? So they got the money. Who's getting the money through COVID? It's households. This is, this is, this is where money is being given directly to you, the consumer. Is it any surprise that we end up with consumer inflation because who got the money and who spent it? Who's going to get the money here? Depositors are guaranteed. This is not, this is not going into Wall Street's pocket. Right? So I don't think we can be guaranteed of asset price inflation like we've had in previous periods. It's a lot of money going in. Yeah. I, I think I think this underscores the, the major inflationary issue that we've we've got now. Uh, yeah. It's not going away anytime soon. So long for transitory. Yeah, no, that that's obvious. And I remember about a year or two ago noticing used cars. I was looking for one. Cars that were three or four years old were selling for more than they cost brand new. And I realized right there, okay, that's a problem. <laughs> You've got a big problem when things, you know, are. are increasing their value that much 
obvious in in a car situation. I, yeah, I was I was shocked by that. So so they're trying to solve the problem. Right. Um, so hey, we'll we'll put in whatever money we need to. But like you said, that's going to create problems. Kind of walk us through if that reality keeps happening. If people get nervous, take their money out, and more and more of these institutions start to go. Uh oh, we're in trouble, and and presumably the federal government's going to bail at least the big ones out, probably for sure, and maybe a lot of the little ones too, when they're pumping all that money. And then we've had, I think, an actual inflation. Haven't we had ten to fifteen percent each year in the last three or four years? From what I've read, is that correct? Yeah, I mean the the inflation issue. We think of the official statistics. And and there's ways of sort of cutting those down to size. Yes. And and there's things called hedonic adjustments. There's the weightings of the various aspects that go into the basket for measurement. And as you change those things, you end up with a different outcome. So you just kind of tinker with the inputs and you get the output that you want. So what inflation number do we want? Well, 10% is pretty high. Maybe we could call it something like six. You know, the reality is the consumer knows, yes. right? And 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 whether you know eggs are eggs are not fair because you've you've got a you know an issue with chickens these days. Uh, but you pick anything else as you go to the grocery store, and and it's not up five percent this year; it's up fifteen or twenty five percent. And you know that's our experience as consumers. That is the reality. And, and so what we're talking about is a gap between the official statistics, the bean counters and the conclusions that they come to and the real world that we live in. And so, yeah, to, to say on average, inflation is closer to 10 or 15 percent. I, I think that's fair. I think yeah, that's fair. which is which is crazy. I mean, people watching this. So just since Biden took office, we've had 20 to 30 percent inflation. What does that mean? It means we're all 20 to 30 percent poorer. Our money's lost the value. You had $100,000. Now it's only going to buy what $70,000 would three years ago. So it's so significant. I know you people know that, but it can't continue or we get in a real bad situation real quickly where no one can afford anything because it's just too expensive. And um, so talk about that, Dave, and, and also just historically, um, where we've seen this happen before in the past. Well, I mean, let's let's start there because the end game, if you're talking about, you know, vast poverty, um, there's really not a problem with that from the state's perspective, because to the degree that you have dependency on the state, it, it solidifies the role of the state in your life. You just can't do without them. Who's who's going to who's going to provide my government cheese? <laughs> you know, and I mean, we've seen this before, but we've seen it mostly in Eastern Europe, if you're talking about sort of the last 50 to 100 years. So if if you want to know what playbook is is in motion, yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with people being impoverished. It, it just means that they're more dependent on the state. And, and if you happen to be sort of the puppet master, you know, managing the stage, um, this is this is not really a problem. Things are going, I don't know if I would say as planned, but things are going um, in a direction that certainly makes a government employee secure in their employment. Um, for us in the private sector, maybe not so much. When you look at different periods of history, you know, it's really important to get a, a clear diagnosis on a problem. 
before you start prescribing. And so you know, the, the Fed and the Treasury keep on jumping in to solve problems. And I'm not sure that they have the proper diagnosis. They're just jumping to treatment. Um, and the same thing happened with, you, you, you mentioned the 1914 to 19. 22 period. Um, it was actually 1918 to 1922, but you, you come through World War I and Germany is bankrupt. And, and, and their solution to the problem of insolvency is literally to print money. And, and they, they had a central banker who basically said, I see the problem. There's not enough money in the system. So we'll just print more. What he didn't realize is what he was doing was impacting behavior. You know, money becomes like a hot potato where you get it, Curtis, and you're like, it's not going to be worth as much tomorrow as it is today. I don't want it. Let's go buy something real with it while it has some value still in it. So it becomes like this hot potato. You get rid of it as fast as you can. The circulation of the money is 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 increased, the, the, the rapidity of its circulation and and the central bank says, I think the problem is we just don't have enough money in the system. So they print even more. And and it's it's funny that today we are solving a liquidity excess problem with more liquidity. It's not exactly like the Weimar Republic, but five trillion comes into the banking system, creates banking instability. And what's the Fed and Treasury's solution to it? I think we need to throw more money at this. It, it has you know, they say that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. There, There is a rhyme here very similar to that Weimar scenario where it's a money problem, but they're, but they're assuming that more money is needed. Our assumption would be actually less might, might actually help, at least the consumer. And from a consumer inflationary standpoint, uh, that's the case. Raising interest rates is one of the only ways that they can solve the inflation problem. The problem goes back to what we talked about earlier, Curtis, how do you raise interest rates on $30 trillion in debt? You know, this last year, we paid over $200 billion in interest. This year, we're going to pay over $400 billion in interest. According to the Congressional Budget Office, by the time we get to $50 trillion in debt, which is only a few years away, less than 10 years away, the annual interest payment will be $1.2 trillion. That's interest only. We're not paying debt. We're ma making minimum payments on the national debt, $1.2 trillion. We're talking about something in excess of 25% of all of government revenue. How are they going to pay for Social Security? How are they going to pay for Medicare? I can tell you the, the solution will be, as it was in the Weimar days, we have a lack of liquidity. We just need to print more money. It's insane. But but I mean, th this is why we, you know, when you think about the simplicity of the gold standard, you can't spend what you don't have, right? Every dollar matches to an ounce of gold, right? So there's this ratio of 20 to one, 20 ounce, a $20 bill was the same thing as one ounce of gold. And it was that way for many, many years. We came off the gold standard after World War II, and then ended any connection to gold in the 1970s, is it any surprise that as soon as we get rid of any vestige of the gold standard, we say, well, the real way to grow here is not through innovation, change, creativity, entrepreneurial risk-taking, it's through credit creation. Let's just become debt addicted. So that, that transition towards debt addiction actually happened 
70s, 80s, 90s, this gradual trend towards being debt addicted. Now the only way to solve inflation is with higher interest rates. And yet you're talking about bankruptcy. There's not enough money coming in to even make payments on the interest piece. That's that's a problem. And we're there. So because of that, and it's clear to see that, and it's clear to see they have to keep interest rates up or, or the inflation will get really crazy. So we know they're going to be where they are or higher over the next, like you said, even decade or so. So, Dave, tell us, what is that? What, what does the future look like if we continue on this course and it doesn't look like we're changing courses? Um, no. If we're on this road, what's the next five or 10 years probably going to look like? Well, so, I mean, just for context, you know, running a precious metals brokerage business, we're in our 50th year that brings some context to owning metals and the best way to own them, the formats to own them. And we can get to that in a minute. Um, But the other hat that I wear is as a portfolio manager for an asset management company. McIlvany Wealth Management focuses on hard assets. Uh, We think that because of the inflation, if you're going to own stocks, then it makes sense to own things that are real. Yeah. So, you know, global natural resources, precious metals, mining companies, specialty real estate, um, infrastructure. Infrastructure could be anything from data centers and cell towers to natural gas and oil pipelines. Real stuff. If you can stub your toe on it, wrap your mind around it, we're interested in it. So what was a tailwind over the last 30 or 40 years, hyperized growth because interest rates were coming down, now becomes a headwind to growth and an impediment to earnings going forward. So the stock market, unless you are very selective with individual companies, the stock market is a place where you can lose money. Not only was 2022 a preview of coming attractions, but as we see this unfold, this is a secular trend. Secular meaning long-term trend, not a short-term cyclical trend. The, The secular trend in equities is down. Why? Because the cost of capital is going up. I mean, it really is that simple. If if you if you have a company that is dependent on debt and the cost of borrowing is on the increase, then your margins are getting squeezed. Your profit margins are getting squeezed. Your earnings, the amount that you can pay out in dividends to investors is getting squeezed, right? So you have to be incredibly selective, incredibly selective if you're going to to remain in the stock market. I, you know, last year while the stock market really was upset down 8%, 19%, 33%, depending on the index, we, we had a decent year. Yeah, no, that's great. And I've purchased gold from you all many times over the years. And people, if you're interested in this, I know many of you are because you've emailed me about it. Um, they're a firm that I know does business the right way and they will take care of you and they will clearly inform you of the risk and this and that and what's the best possibilities of things to do and all the details that an average person doesn't know because you're like, I haven't studied this for 50 years. I'm not sure. Um, they know that. So so Dave, what what's the best way for people if they wanted to call and talk to someone there at the office? And they're all great guys. I know a lot of the the, the salesmen that work there they're just quality people, as you will see, if you want to call and just talk to them, there's no pressure. They will not try to get you to do something you don't want to do. They will not, 
yeah, you know, like some like a used car sale and puts pressure. You're going to buy it. You're going to buy it. They're not going to do that. I know they're not going to because I know them. Um, but if you're interested and you have some money that's kind of sitting there that you don't need right away because every market does this. So you can buy it and it goes down a little bit and it goes up a little bit. But I think personally, and I this is I'm not a financial advisor, so it's only my opinion. But I've lived for 57 years and watched things happen. I think over the next five or 10 years, silver and gold both will be substantially higher than they are today. Um, and I think that's the way it is. But Dave, talk, talk to them about you know, how they would do that. Well, there's good news and bad news. If, if you own gold and silver, I, I agree with you. I think the next five to 10 years do represent a change in value, a positive change in value. But what that really suggests is that we're talking about a negative change in value for the US dollar. It just means that the dollar, it's gonna take more of your dollars to buy the same ounce of silver, to buy the same ounce of gold. So it, it, when I think of metals, I don't think of a way to get rich quick. That's right. You know, oh, here's the opportunity. You've gotta get in on the ground floor. Not at all. I think that they are what they always have been, the more reliable form of money and, and there's a time to have a good amount of liquidity. In this case, it's a stable form of money. And there will, become a time, there will come a time when it makes sense to put that money to work, right? In some other investment or for your, your personal needs and requirements and retirement or what have you. But how do you maintain stable savings in a period of inflation? Well, we've been in a period of inflation. The question is, is it 1% or 2% where we can ignore it? Or is it eight or 10% where if you ignore it, you do so at your own financial peril? And, and so you cannot ignore it today without paying a significant price. But it has been going on since the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913. We've lost 97% of the value of our dollar, its purchasing power, since the creation of the Fed. And their singular mandate at the time was price stability. Price stability. Unbelievable. How'd they do? Uh, do, they, do you give them an A rating? I mean, you've got 600 PhDs working at the Federal Reserve, and this is what they deliver, is we're just going to nick you 1%, 2% a year, and you're going to thank us for it. Really? Really? So if, the two ways of getting in touch with us, one, just go to McIlvaney.com. McIlvaney.com. At that site, you can explore what we do on the metal side. If you want to request information, we'll be happy to send something to you for, for you to review. Um, you can also look at the resources that we provide of an educational nature. We write uh, a whole bunch of stuff. There's probably 50, 60 pages of material if you wanted to read them on a weekly basis that we're creating and generating. Um, the Credit Bubble Bulletin is excellent if you want to go to the deep end of the pool. Hard Asset Insights is something that I wouldn't do without. I'd be reading it every Saturday. Um, I do my podcast. It's now in its 16th year. We do that every week. That's an audio podcast. Or if you want to wait until Friday or Thursday, there's a transcript of it as well. Um, so lots of educational resources. Curtis, as you said, we're not a high pressure group. We would want to educate, ask lots of questions, listen, figure out what your needs are, and figure out how to connect those things up. There's lots of ways to approach the metals markets. We want to hear from you what your object, your objectives are. And if your objectives are primarily asset preservation, then we're going to have certain recommendations. If you have growth that you want included, there's things that you can you can include within a metals portfolio that, that allow you to 
see more or less growth. It just depends on what your, your motivations are. So we want to listen. We want to ask lots of questions and then match you up with the right resources. Education, education, education. We've got lots of resources at McIlvaney.com. Or if you want to talk to someone straight away, 800-525-9556. 525-9556. Um, same number we've had for close to 50 years. Yes, I remember that. Remember <laughs> when you just said that. I was like, I think it's 9556. Yeah, that's, that's right. No, that's great. Well, Dave, I appreciate it greatly. And I know uh, people, he just was able to just touch the surface. But if you go to McIlvaney.com, it's a wealth of knowledge, like he said, to educate you. And then when you get educated, I think you'll realize I need some of my wealth in this gold or silver or precious metals or different things that they're doing. Because things are so unstable, you can't take the risk of <laughs> losing it all or where it gets so bad that you know in 10 years if they've if we've had 10 percent a year for the next 10 years that's 100 percent where your money's lost you know half of its value and stuff so anyway um i appreciate you dave and all that you do and i, I appreciate your time and coming on here to help educate us a little bit about what's going on and offer some opportunities for people to learn more thank you curtis great opportunity to be with you great to see you again you too Anyway, I hope that was a blessing to you. I know some of you might say, well, I don't have any money to put in gold and silver. That's fine. Then you don't. So don't worry about that. Just do what you can right where you are. Don't put money in gold and silver or any other investment that you need to live off of because investments go up and down over time and you don't want to have to sell it at the point that it's down. So this is more for long-term thinking to preserve what we have because we know the dollar is collapsing right now. It is completely collapsing and all the countries of the world are getting out of it, which is going to make inflation go up higher and it's going to make the dollars worth less and less. A couple of the films we have below to watch this week. One is called The Age of Easy Money. It's a PBS documentary, but which I was shocked that it was decent at all, but it was really good and had a lot of great information in it. It wasn't perfect because it's PBS, but it gives you a history and it's very well done of how we've gotten to this point, because throwing out easy money, and now we're finally gonna have a crisis. Another video below is by Steve Quayle and Mike Adams, and they get into how serious this situation really is. I don't know, know if I agree with every single conclusion they had, but there was a lot of great information in it to just, again, awaken us out of our sleep. Life is so good in America, it's easy for us to always think, What's the problem? Oh, everything will be fine. It's always been fine. Well, it's not always going to be fine. I promise you that because, again, you do reap what you sow. There's no way of getting around that principle because God put it in place. But anyway, I appreciate you being there. Our verse for this week is Proverbs 27, 23. Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks and look well to thy herds. And that, of course, is God talking about what we were talking about today. He said, take inventory often. You know, look at the, the state of your flocks. He means what he has given you. How are you managing it? Are you using it wisely? Or, or what's your situation like? Can you get in a better situation by maybe selling some things and getting out of debt or whatever it might be? But be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks and look well to thy herds. And I hope today was... Um, helpful in reminding you of that principle 
and uh, I just I know that we're, we're in for some rough waters because of the poor decisions that have been made for the last couple generations and they're finally coming back to haunt us but God is with us but we need to this week take inventory take stock of the flocks and the herds and, and see if there's something God might want us to do differently with what we have but until next week God bless you